We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 95. Our guest today hardly needs an introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. He is one of the top eventers in the world. He is a six-time Olympian with two golds and a bronze. He has been to the 2016 Olympic Games, 2012, 2008, 2004, 2096. He has so much world championship experience. He's also been in the Pan American Games in 2015 and 2007. He is so successful, and I was so pumped to have him on the podcast to share just a little bit of knowledge and and what he thought going through all of these amazing events and being so successful in his career. Please welcome our guest today, Philip Dutton. Well, I would love to hear how you first got into riding. What did it look like for you as you uh, joined the equestrian industry? Well, it's quite a few years ago now, but I I grew up in what would be called a pretty isolated area in Australia um, on a farm. It's a sheep and cattle farm. And so, you know, horses were always a part of my life. Uh, We used the horses to help with, you know, rounding up the sheep and cattle. And so, you know, all my memory is always we've had horses from one for one reason or another. And so I learned to ride more from the seat of your pants than any kind of intellectual studying the, the sport or the, the philosophy of it, if you might <clears throat> if you might understand. And you know, it was a situation where, you know, if you fell off you had to walk home. So I sort of <laughs> learned how to ride by by just staying on and you know, and as times moved on I've studied a lot more but I sort of did a little bit the opposite way of learning than some people might and we had like 25,000 acres and so we spent you know it was nothing to spend all day in the saddle for work or helping mum and dad out or whatever and then we sort of we had a local pony club that we used to travel to once a month and lots of in Australia was agricultural shows where they'd have uh, you know show jumping and pack classes and that kind of thing and people would show cattle and chooks and um, chickens and everything else and uh, they'd also have a horse section and so it was that kind of growing up and it was more fun than so much you know too serious about it but I, I did a little bit of everything where it was you know did some show jumping and what we call you know barrel racing and you know camp drafting and uh, every kind of thing that you would uh, see in that kind of area and and then I tended to drift towards the eventing because it you know being in an isolated area I could sort of just get my horses fit and train and then sort of just go off to the events individually rather than sort of being at shows all the time uh, like you'd need to with show jumping kind of thing and and then I had an opportunity to travel with the left college and worked on the farm with my brothers and uh, there was a pretty bad downturn in the agriculture industry and so I I was the youngest and not married and I just said offered to get out of it and take a break from it and that's when I you know got a horse who was true blue girdwood and come to America for which I thought was for going to be for about a year and met a cute girl over here and I'm still here. (laughs) Love it that's great and at the time was she rider or how did you guys meet? 
Well, Evie's American, and so she lived in this area where I moved to. And it was actually through Bruce Davidson that I got to. He found me a place to, you know, I was... I spoke to him and asked if there was an opportunity to bring a horse and get a job and work in exchange for, you know, a room and horse. And so he helped me out there and Evie was in this area. And so we got to know each other that way. Gotcha. What did you find was a big difference for you for riding in Australia versus riding in America? Well, I mean, Australia is uh, such a small population and, you know, doesn't have the, you know, the wealth is probably the wrong term, but it doesn't have the establishment of, you know, families have been in the area for longer time. It's a much younger country. And so, you know, everything is done much more on the cheap and a lot more maybe practical <laughs> might be a better word. Like the horses are not stabled so much. They're, you know, virtually turned out 24-7. And, sure. you know, and it's certainly it's a lot bigger and much more professional now, uh, you know, because that was 25 years ago. But having said that, they, you know, and again, a little bit, a lot of the riders sort of, learned to ride a little bit more along the lines that I did. And so, you know, some obviously some great riders have come from Australia, but you've got to make your own opportunities there. There's, you know, there's not a lot of people there that have got the checkbooks open and wanted to buy your horse or anything like that. Um, and got so, it. Uh, uh, it was a different um, different way. Here in America, you know, everything's a bit more established and the vet facilities and the Everything that's associated with horses is just a little bit more um, professionally done. And, and it was good, you know, in Australia where I grew up, certainly I was the odd guy that wanted to ride horses. Like that was not the <laughs> thing to do. Uh, certainly, you know, if I said I wanted to be a rugby player or a cricket player, that right. would be a little bit more accepted. Whereas here in America, you know, it's the accepted thing that, you know, if this is what you want to do and you're good at it, you know, and you, you sort of gain a little the respect of people. Uh, a little bit easier probably than in Australia. Sure. At what point did you, you were doing this, you had brought a horse and were working in exchange for keeping your horse. At what point were you like, you know, I think I can see myself doing this for a career, doing this, you know, long-term. You know, I'd always dreamed of it as a little kid. Like I'd always dreamed about coming to the Olympics and, you know, so I've way past my my childhood dreams because I, you know, if I would have got to one Olympics, I would have been really happy. But, you know, I'd always wanted to do it. I guess the biggest part was, you know, how could I afford to do it and, you know, get myself in a situation to be able to have a string of horses and to be able to do it. And so, you know, it was never did I want to do it as whether I could do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, and after being, you know, I decided I'd come to America for a year and after you know, sort of halfway through that time here. And I realized that, you know, a year in a, in a year, in a career is nothing in the horse world. And so that it was going to take, you know, a lot longer to get established and, you know, learn enough and um, be able to get the people behind me that, you know, I'd need, needed to sort of keep going with a career. And so, and I really love this country. And, you know, somebody once said to me, you know, for an hour worked anywhere in the world, you get a more reward for it in America. And I do believe that. And, and that was always in the back of my mind that this would be a, you know, this land of opportunity. Or, and uh, so I was here for a while. And then, you know, after that year, I then decided, you know what, this is, this is what I want to do and where I want to be. And so I sort of then went about the slow process of adjusting my visas and all that kind of stuff yeah. so that I was able to stay here. And I think then once I 
sort of made that decision, it was people knew I was here for the long haul. It was it was somewhat easier to get clients and to get people to support me as well. And because they knew I was going to be around for a while. Absolutely. Yeah. And so your first Olympic experience, that was Hong Kong, right? In 2000. Oh, no, we go back way back before that. It was uh, the Atlanta Olympics, actually. So, oh, wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, so, so how many Olympic games have you participated in now? I've been to six, six, six. Olympics. Amazing. Yeah, I've been yeah, I actually haven't missed one since. Yeah, <laughs> so. Wow, so cool! So tell me, tell me about your first experience and how kind of the process went for you to uh, be able to participate. Well, I mean, the, the process is quite drawn out, and you know, it's not a case of you know all of a sudden you do well and you get picked for the Olympics. I mean, right. it's, there's so many hoops you have to jump through on a weekly basis and monthly basis, and you know, I, like I mentioned, I brought this horse, True Blue Girdwood, over from Australia, and he was starting to do well. And I actually got selected for the World Championships in 1994 in The Hague in Holland. And so I rode there. And, you know, and then I think, you know, the Australian selectors thought that I should go to badminton to, you know, to help my chances of getting selected. So I went there and did well, got in the top 10 there. And so then I was on track to get selected for the Atlanta Olympics. But having said that, you know, on each week you, you know, if your horse takes a bad step or you fall off at an event or whatever, there's no, there's no guarantees anywhere. So it's not, you know, it's not as easy or as straightforward as uh, just being able to say, you know, you got a good performance and then you get picked. And so you're on edge all the time. And, but we went to Actually, we trained in Aiken. The Australian team trained in Aiken in South Carolina leading up to the Atlanta Olympics. And so we go there with a squad. So a lot of the Australian riders, you know, from Europe and Australia all came in and we were all based there together. And actually the show jumping team was there with us as well. And then there's a certain date that um, they then name the the team and individuals, etc. And yeah, so, I mean, it obviously was a, a huge moment for me because you know in in our sport in this equestrian sports certainly you know representing your country is great and you know world championships and nations cups and all that kind of stuff but when it comes to the olympic games it doesn't matter whether you're a horse enthusiast or not everybody follows it and as you know like virtually the whole world stops for those two weeks to watch and so getting selected for the olympics is is just that much further up the ladder than anything else that you'll do in the, the um, equestrian world. And, you know, it's cool for my mum and dad who, mm-hmm. you know, made a lot of sacrifices for me to ride and, you know, everybody else that had supported me in Australia. And it was, it was an ideal thing for me as in to get on the Australian team, we end up winning a team gold medal and it was here in America where I was based. And so it was a bit of a fairy tale actually. Wow. So cool. And you've also been, I know, um, the USEA leading rider for like, what, every year since like 2000? <laughs> yeah, I backed down a bit with the amount of horses I ride. So I haven't been yeah. leading rider for a bit now. But yeah, it's interesting. There's a kind of a, if you look down that list, I think Bruce Davison was leading rider for a long time. And then it was uh, David O'Connor for a while. And then for me, and then I think it's, there's a few of them fighting it out now yeah. with Boyd's been a couple of leading rider for a couple of times. So a lot of that, you know, the leading rider 
just on points goes on your numbers you know like if you have enough horses and you compete every weekend well then you know if you can put in some good performances you've got more chance of you know getting enough points to be the leading rider for that year I mean my emphasis now is not quite so much on the numbers but just getting a little bit more better quality and trying to do my job a little better kind of with all of that being said do you have a like a sweet spot as far as like how many horses you like in your string yeah I mean that's a hard one I mean you know you've got different things that you need to take into account obviously you can't charge you know it'd be ideal just to have a couple of horses and then everybody pay for that and then you make a living doing that but then mm-hmm. you know it's it's you have to charge too much to you know for a small amount of people to make make uh, ends meet for you you know right. so having more horses you know you divide the costs up a little bit better when you go to a show and all that so that's a bit easier on the owners and so there's that part of it and the other part of it is you know injuries in our sport it is a galloping discipline just like in any galloping sport you know the injuries are there all the time so having horses you know the the spare horses or up-and-coming horses is crucial and you know the other thing that I've learned along the way is you know you've got to be preparing for the next so it's not just these Olympics coming up next year but it's the ones in four years three or four years time after that and the world championship so you've always got to have horses in the pipeline coming up so that you you know you have a career where you don't sit things out for a couple of years because you haven't got a horse you know so so that's also important so to answer your question the sweet spot you know I think in the depending on the situation you have with help and all that but around the 10 horses is uh, 10 or 12 is probably ideal at different ages and different uh, levels and you know I think it's important each year to evaluate each horse and you know just be frank and honest with yourself about you know how it's going and if he's standing up to it and how the train how he's accepting the training and if the horse is still at the potential that you thought it did and you know you don't want to get stuck with you know a horse that you sort of thought was the best one but then six years later you're wrong you know and so you have to sort of you know, for me, I've only got so many hours in a day and so many hours in a year to put into horses. And so I want to put it into the right ones and put my time and energy and people's money into the right horses so that, you know, we get the most bang for the buck and return on that money as well. Mm-hmm. In that and, regard, do you have a specific type of horse that you look for or what is your process like when you are looking for horses to incorporate into your program? Yeah, well, that's a tough one, that one. <laughs> I mean, the, the short answer is you want a good horse. And, you know, they come in all shapes and sizes. Yes. Obviously, the, you know, at the highest level, the five-star level, they've got to be able to gallop. And mm-hmm. thankfully, you know, the sport has changed so much, certainly in my career, sure. but the, the emphasis is still on, you know, you've got to have a fast horse on the cross-country that's brave and clever and, you know, it's it's got to be a proper cross-country horse still. And so... A thoroughbred type is mm-hmm. usually that horse. Now, you know, obviously there's been a move away from the actual straight thoroughbred, but and there's not many horses that are really successful at that higher level that, you know, aren't really good gallopers. And so so first off, it's got a, you know, when you're looking at a horse, and again, for your listeners, not everybody's after a five-star horse either. So, mm-hmm. you know, you've got to, I always try to picture what that horse would be like, you know, 
in four years' time with training. And, you know, if it's a big, heavy horse that can't gallop, well, then that's, you know, not going to be suitable. But obviously then they need to be able to have the movement and the softness for the dressage and the trainability and then obviously the jump and the mind to be able to, you know, to be able to take that training. And for me, I've got to really like riding them because, you know, they're going to be your partner for the next so many years and so it's got to be something that you 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 like you're excited about getting on every day and and so it it, it's not easy and you know obviously you yes you do need a brave horse for the cross country but you know they've got to be careful on that third day as well and you know some of my show jumping friends that I you know I've explained try to explain to them it's not just about getting a brave horse you know and sometimes you know the more successful ones are you know, are a little bit careful and you have to be, you know, keep them confident on the cross country. But then on the third day, in show jumping day, you know, they really are there for you rather than a horse that's just, you know, you get a horse that's really, really aggressive and bold, but then, you know, they're harder to show jump on the last day after they've been galloping for four miles. So, yeah. so there's a lot goes into it. It's a pretty unique horse. It's, uh, you know, any I've got great respect for any horse that gets to a five-star level and uh, yeah. because they've got to be, you know, a master of, you know, every discipline. And, you know, I started my first uh, big influence in my life was a man named Wayne Roycroft who was uh, a huge influence in Australia for many years and uh, we've become very good friends and he was my coach for many years and he said you know the really great horses understand each phase and are able to you know once you prepare them for each phase then you know they they can handle they come out and do their job for that phase and I, I it sort of the more and more I do I realize that you know you you've got to have a horse after being able to gallop and get tired on that cross country day they come back out and they you know are able to shorten their stride and and not jump like a, like they did on the cross country and so it's pretty unique when you get a really good one hold that thought because i want to talk about our sponsor today left lead collective offers unique equestrian apparel and accessories that are aimed at affordability while promoting inclusivity and dedication in our sport Check out everything left lead collective has in store from t-shirts to sweaters to stickers and more Podcast listeners do get a special discount. Use code PODCAST10 and take 10% off your order. You can visit their website at leftleadcollective.com. That's L-E-F-T-L-E-A-D-C-O-L-L-E-C-T-I-V-E.com. Thank you so much, Left Lead Collective. Let's get back to the episode. So let's say you are... You, you find a horse that you think is going to be a good fit for your program, but it hasn't quite done much in the eventing space. Kind of run me through a little bit like eventing for dummies. What do you do when you are first getting a horse to start introducing them to all three areas and, and starting incorporating that into their training? Right. Well, you know, on the dressage, obviously the first step is to get them to be able to, you know, depending on how green the horse is, but getting to go forward and come round so that they're using themselves correctly. So you want the horse to reach for the bit and be able to swing and, you know, get suspension and softness in its stride. And so, you know, that it be all introductory kind of dressage work and strengthening. And then across country, you know, certainly in my mind, there's not that many horses don't enjoy the cross country if 
they get a good introduction to it. You know, right. it's so you know you can start as low as you want, as in, you know, if it's a horse that hasn't been out in the fields and cross country much, you can even just walk and trot and canter over different terrain and Mm -hmm. up and down hills and that kind of stuff and getting exposed and so that it enjoys that and then obviously you can introduce logs and you know small ditches and then you know the water I try to stay away from streams and uh, little creeks and that kind of stuff because you don't want the horse getting in there and it's muddy and not a Mm -hmm. secure base to the for the horse you know so i try to get them in a water jump that's got a nice base to it so it's a great experience and it's not very deep and and you know then you build on it from there so you know and most horses are a little hesitant about something whether it's a ditch or whether it's the water or whatever and so you sort of then go from there and um then obviously you know once you get up the levels a bit you then have to introduce you know uh narrow or technical kind of jumps where you know the horse has got to stay on a specific line and mm-hmm. stay on an angle to the jump and then obviously now brush brush on the cross country is a big part of the courses as well so the horse has got to get used to not over jumping with brush and um, so there's a lot goes to it and yeah. obviously with the show jumping it's you know the basics of getting the horse in a nice rhythm and rocking back and being able to be careful and not jump flat. Right. Definitely. Between the three areas, do you tend to have a favorite or a most challenging area or does it depend on the horse? Well, I would say the cross country comes, you know, and I'm not saying the greatest, but it comes the easiest for me because that's how I grew up and not not interfering with the horse and just galloping down to the jumps. And that part of it is a little bit, you know, more easy for me i mean i didn't have much dressage um training at growing you know growing up and so you know i've had to work pretty hard at that and the show jumping to to come to but like you said back to your question i mean some horses you know are more gifted in the dressage and just then you don't put quite as much emphasis on that and Mm -hmm. some horses are you know just great show jumping horses and might need a little bit more in the cross country so yes it depends a little bit more on you know the horse and the partnership you have but you know and I'd probably out of all of the the time spent with the horses if we had to categorize it you know would be probably more time on the flat in dressage Mm -hmm. and then obviously getting the horses fit so that takes time as in you know slow trotting and cantering and you know in the show jumping in jumping in the ring on good footing you know a lot of the exercises you do there are you know helpful for the cross country as well you know just getting a horse quick footed and thinking and holding on the jump and so we'd actually probably do the least amount of cross country schooling if you put it down in time per week or whatever out of all phases but arguably it's probably the most important Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Obviously a big part of the sport is keeping a horse healthy. I mean, it's a jumping, a lot of fences. It's a lot of galloping. Keeping a horse sound is extremely, extremely important, especially in inventing. What are some things that you do to try to, you know, keep your horses as healthy as possible for as long as possible? Right. Yeah. No, it is crucial. And, you know, there's, you know, first off, I'd say as a younger horse, you know, you've got to put those miles into them, you know, just because like if you get a horse off the racetrack, 
they've already been fit and they're really hardened and good. So that, you know, that's a great start for you because you don't have to do it. If you get a horse that's, you know, purpose bred or, you know, let's say you get a horse from Germany or Ireland, Mm -hmm. you know, that horse needs to get those miles into him because later on he's got to have that base or he's not going to stand up to it, you know. And, you know, and I think also you have to be understanding, like I talked about before, like a five-star horse, is pretty unique and not all horses just the same not all people can stand up to it and so figuring out what your horse is going to be able to stand up to is probably going to save you some time and some money as well but you know all the common sense stuff like keeping your horse on good footing you know when you jump and gallop and on your flat work so that you know concussion is you know some concussion is good because it gets the blood supply going but having you know too much concussion is not good long term doesn't matter what and so trying to give your horse every possible chance on good footing but then also really being prepared for when he goes out so you know if your horse is not fit enough when you get to the show the chances are he's going to get injured and um, because you know the tendons and the muscles and everything are that stretched because they're tired you know and so getting the horse saving your horse at home is not the answer you know getting putting the work into the horse before so that they're prepared for the show is is pretty crucial and then there's you know obviously lots of grooming and veterinary stuff that mm-hmm. you know we could spend all day going into yeah. what what would be helpful for horses and and preparing them and so you know in this country we're the leader and you know that kind of veterinary side of it as well so you know this is making sure the horse has the best opportunity when he gets to the show to come out of it in a sound way is you know there's a lot goes into it but having him prepared and fit and ready is probably the most important definitely let's say you are heading into a horse show the morning of your first day what are some things that you go through physically to I guess obviously I'm sure again each horse will be a different kind of preparation process but in general what are the kind of things you're doing to prepare both physically and mentally myself or the horse yourself myself well you know obviously I don't just simple stuff like I don't like to eat too much when I'm riding so you know if I feel bloated or full I just not really it's not a good feeling for me so I'd much I ride best when I'm really hungry and starving and (laughs) so I I I always I get more focused when I'm when I'm like that and so just preparing you know yourself around it so I don't like to be rushed I don't like to you know all of a sudden feel that I'm not prepared so I'd rather have everything ready and not necessarily get on early but just be ready to to go and have feel secure that I've I'm done everything and then get on when I'm when when it's the right time and as you know obviously I've done this a lot now I don't it doesn't take me long to get myself mentally prepared like it literally can take just a couple minutes of just sitting on my own and visualizing what you know whether it's going through the dressage test or the cross-country course or show jumping so that I you know can get switched on and and not having too many distractions is good but you know you got to learn you know if you've got a bunch of people around you that are supporting you you know obviously part of your job is to make sure they have a good time as well so you know so you can't just you know not not be involved and just sit in the car on your own so there's (laughs) (laughs) so you've got to you've got to be able to switch on and switch off and I don't I'm not a big yoga 
you know, Pilates kind of guy. I do try to, as I get older, I got to stretch more and get myself ready that way. But so it's more just common sense stuff that mm-hmm. I try to do to did make you, sure when. Did you used to get nervous competing or have you always just been, it, it hasn't really phased you that way? No, I, I get nervous. Uh, yeah. You know, I certainly do get nervous. And I think that's a good thing. Like, I, yeah. I, I worry if I'm a bit too complacent, I sort of try to hit myself around a bit and get myself really into it because uh-huh. th- that's usually not good for me if I'm taking it for granted. You know, and sometimes if you ride a couple of horses around a big course, you know, the, and the first one's going well, I just got to make sure that I don't just coast uh, through, you know, the rest coast of through <laughs> and think that's going to happen again. You got to right. create it all the time. So, totally. no, I, I certainly get nervous just like anybody, but I think that. Yeah, the biggest thing is you can't let that be a negative thing for your writing. You got to make sure that's a good thing for your writing. I try to get people to understand you've got to sort of get programmed to that. So, you know, if you're if you're having a lesson with somebody, you got to put some pressure on yourself that you you know you try to really use every opportunity you get to put pressure on yourself so that you're used to it, you know, so that in every little show you go to, you take it serious and you make sure that you're at your best when you ride, you know, and uh, so, you know, when it comes down to the big day, when it really, really counts that you're at your best, you know, you, you know how to do that and, and to pull it out. Yeah, that's a really good point. Obviously, you have had some amazing moments in your career. Are there any that stick out as far as, you know, just like highlights of di- different events that you've been to in the past? Yeah, I mean, well, I can, obviously the ones that stand out is, you know, I was on the gold medal team in Atlanta and then in Sydney. And that was, like I said, a fairy tale way to get going in your career because totally. I you know, we went back to Sydney and I think every person that I've ever gone to school with or met or whatever was at the Sydney Olympics Aww. and to, to, to pull that off and to be a part of that team. And like I said, with Wayne Roycroft sort of managing and running it, it was, it was a dream come true. And then I obviously then have changed my nationality somewhere in there a bit later after that. And then, you know, a, a um, the Tim and Nina Gardner owned this horse that they bred uh, called House Doctor, and I rode him at the Sydney Olympics, and mm-hmm. so that was really rewarding because they were, you know, been so good to me. And then another great man who unfortunately passed on is Bruce Duchessoir, and he owned a horse called Canort, and I won uh, the, which is now the five star at Kentucky with Canort, and actually it's the last American to to win it, and um, which wow. is in two thousand and eight. And Bruce was there to watch that and to be a part of that. So that was that was something that I'll cherish and remember for the rest of my life. And then actually Bruce bought the horse called Mighty Nice. And so he went on and after Bruce's passing and then went on and we won an individual silver, individual bronze at, uh, at Rio. And Annie Jones, who has been a big part of my career, she has helped me out with Marty Nice and Carolyn Moran and Evie, my wife, and Kevin Keane. And so it was like a family affair. Yeah. And then obviously in Bruce's honor um, to, to have that with the, with the horse. So, you know, there's been times like that and, and probably the, hopefully the better times are still ahead of me as well. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. What would you say is an area of the industry that you are particularly passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk a lot about? 
I mean, there's a couple of parts, you know, that I I feel strongly about that a couple of things. One is the eventing now has grown so much and changed so much. And like when I first come to this country, there's virtually, you know, Bruce Davidson was a, you know, big time professional, but there wasn't many people actually making a living from the sport. You know, a lot of them were, you know, family supported or just doing it until for a while. And then they left and got another, got a proper job as such. And, you know, in the last 15 years, there's so many riders now. Yeah. Making a, you know, trying to find a way to make a living from this sport and support themselves and then ultimately a family or whatever and it's you know it's difficult and with I think we're all trying to find a way how to do that it's not there's not big prize money in the sport and the you know and so everybody's got a different way whether it's selling horses or teaching or whatever and I think that it'd be good if that if everybody was a little bit more on the same page and and sort of worked around rather than to try and poach off each other <laughs> rather than and so I think sort of trying to bring more people into the sport and uh, more because it is a great sport and I think you know people would really enjoy being own, more ownership and being a part of different writers careers so I think there's a big area there for us to grow and to grow that base you know there's certainly a big base of amateur you know part-time people in the sport it's you know I think arguably we have the biggest membership of anywhere in the world, but it's that uh, sort of is not necessarily flowing onto the upper level riders or the support for them, you know. So I think there's a, um, you know, there's work to be done there on all different fronts from obviously riders, but also from maybe the federations to sort of help guide that along. And, you know, I also believe, you know, certainly the US has not had some great success from the team point of view for quite a while now. And, you know, I think that what I just talked about plays a part in it, that it's hard for riders to really to put the time into their riding rather than just making a living and trying to survive. But there's a difference between going to the Olympics or world championships and being prepared or being ready, you know, Mm -hmm. and I I believe preparation is, you know, getting yourself there and your horse is fit and you, you think you're ready. But like we talked about, a little bit before on the podcast you know having yourself ready to ride at your absolute best when you know the whole world's watching you or your whole team relies on you is a different story as well and you you know any of the times I look back where we've and I put myself in this same category as well it's not just I'm not yeah saying other people but you know it hasn't been like any trouble it hasn't been because a jump is too hard for us to jump or whatever it's just a case of putting it all together and the three phases and you know when is really needed and so you know i think we're at a little bit of a disadvantage the the competition in this country certainly in eventing is not as strong as probably some of the rest of the world and you know so being prepared to take on the rest of the world and be as good as them we're going to have to think a little bit more out of the box to be really ready for that you know as as it comes up in the future but certainly i think we've got the riders and we've got the horses it's just a case of getting you know hardened and ready for that kind of competition rather than you know a softer kind of competition that we have here 
Yeah. What What do you think would be, I mean, just brainstorming, what, what do you think would be a good route to try to begin to, you know, have conversations to change that? Do you think just being like having the professionals be, you know, like a little bit more creative with routes of being able to support themselves so that they also still have time to ride and compete? Or what, what do you, what do you think would be the best route to go moving forward? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing is there's a shortage of people that want to own these horses and be a part of it and so or if that can be made more lucrative Mm -hmm. and not so much in that they're going to make any money but that they feel a part of it and like everybody wants to have a horse there wouldn't be anybody out there that didn't want to be a part of a horse that represent their country and so Mm -hmm. sort of we've got to create that dream for people and I think there's people out there that but it's not as clear how to get into it and, and right. be a part of it as well and so exactly. I think I, I think you're right I think there are people out there that would totally be up for being a part of that investment and a part of the, a team in that way but would mm. have no idea how like the next steps to take to get there yeah and they're a bit scared of it as well you yeah. know what's the commitment and you know there's so many different ways now that you can you know obviously the word syndicate sort of scares people a bit maybe, but, you know, there's partnerships and there's all different ways that you can do it that, that people can be involved in and be a part of it and and also help these riders. And it's it's also about the journey, you know, like most of the people that I've had best time with and success with, you know, they enjoy or understand the day-to-day as well of what, you know, you go through and the ups and downs. And, you know, it's obviously not just a case of just turning up at Kentucky and, mm-hmm. you know, enjoying the VIP tent. You know, you've got to understand that the, the, enjoy, the satisfaction comes from knowing what you went through to get there as well and the obstacles that you got over to get there. So, you know, I think there's, and then this day and age with, it's pretty easy to take a video of your horse and get it out and send it out. And maybe with the, the way the health in this world is going at the moment, outdoor sports are going to be a lot more popular, you know, so right. um, people getting out in the cross country to watch might be a, you know, a lot more enticing than it was yeah, before. That's, that's a good point. Definitely. Mm. Well, Philip, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the equestrian podcast. You are a wealth of knowledge and I appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you for having me, Bethany. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.